This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. My guest today has a great American story. She's a former Secretary of State, the first woman to serve as National Security Advisor. She's a professor of political science at Stanford University, and she is a best-selling author. In her latest book, Democracy, Stories from the Long Road to Freedom, she analyzes three of the biggest social and political realignments in modern times, the civil rights movement, the fall of communism, and the Arab Spring. Recently, we held a Facebook Live conversation for nearly an hour. What you're about to hear are some of the highlights from that discussion, where we start with the mystery and the menace that is North Korea. Well, it's a very dangerous situation because over the recent years, uh, they've gotten more capable with their nuclear program, uh, apparently more capable also with their long-range missile program. So it starts to put the United States at risk, and that's what's worrying the president at this point. No American president can allow a reckless, uh, perhaps a little unhinged, uh, leader of North Korea to be able to, uh, to to terrorize the United States. So uh, they are trying, I think, a combination of pressure, which is to convince the world that the United States will not stand idly by and let this happen. Uh, that pressure is mostly aimed at the Chinese, who have some influence, not absolute influence, but some influence with the North Korean regime. Uh, because the Chinese are going to have to do some very tough things in order to change the course of this. Yeah, do you think Beijing is willing to do that? Well, Beijing has got to understand uh, that the choice is no longer do we just sort of let the North Koreans go along and we worry more about what if the North Korean regime collapses. Beijing worries about long border, refugee flows. But now they need to understand uh, that the time is really up. As, as uh, Secretary Tillerson said, the time for strategic patience has really yeah, passed. Yeah, we heard that from him. President yes. Trump said under the right circumstances, to paraphrase, he would meet one-on-one with Kim Jong-un. Well, I, I don't the, know how you define the right circumstances. Yeah, and that's, that's really the key. That? The key is, the right, you, you never use the President of the United States until the circumstances are absolutely right. And the circumstances right now have to get the international community to really be serious about this, China to be serious about it, to let people know that the United States will put all options on the table, even though, frankly, the options aren't, uh, aren't that good. With Kim on Instagram, she writes, will sanctions be enough in dealing with North Korea? It's a very good question. Uh, look, sanctions, it's already the most sanctioned country in the world. And uh, it's it? Also, it, yes, easily. I saw a report on Sky News this week that showed the trucks yeah. of commerce rolling across the border. Yeah, but they're coming from, by us, it's the most sanctioned in the world. And it's actually, it's under a lot of U.N. sanctions as well. But the Chinese do continue to supply them, even the Russians a little bit uh, at the edges, and that's got to stop. Uh, but we need to look at further sanctions by all means. Uh, but I think ultimately we're going to need uh, the help of those who continue to give the North Koreans a lifeline. 
uh, we're not the ones, the Europeans are not the ones giving the North Koreans a lifeline. And by, let me say one other thing. We're going to have to work very closely with the South Koreans and the Japanese. It's their neighborhood. They're the ones in the most imminent danger. And so... Uh, it it we, appears that pivot has been made in a way that the Obama administration wanted to, y- yes. but never got to. Well, w- the, the pivot we, we tried even all the way back in the 2000s. I, I do. Look, the, the idea that uh, this, the North Koreans are threatening not just us, but Japan, South Korea, I would argue also Russia, uh, should be a unifying theme. And uh, hopefully we can get tougher sanctions in the UN to the to the questioner's um, point, uh, but it's going to take more than just sanctions. It's going to take some of those who have been helping the North Koreans backing off in order to get a change in North Korean behavior. Uh, another question, uh, this on Russia now, okay? On Instagram, Andrew writes, could the United States have done more to promote democracy in mm-hmm. Russia and include them in the international system after the dissolution of the Soviet Union? Another very good question. We certainly tried. Uh, everybody wanted a democratic Russia. Uh, in Europe and the United States wanted Russia fully integrated. Uh, we thought that the, the raw material, if you will, was there. It was a highly educated population. It was an industrialized country. Um, and so we thought if you just sort of freed the, the, the energy of the Russian people, it, it might work. They built some good institutions under Gorbachev and then under Yeltsin. And I believe, and the book makes this point, I think they then sort of started to ignore their own institutions. Uh, Boris Yeltsin started ruling by decree, mm. not through the parliament. That led to corruption. Uh, it led to corruption. There or, was, or maybe uh, it never uh, cleared uh, out the, the corruption, corruption in the first A place. lot of the corruption also came from privatization and uh, the like, some of which was good, the privatization, but some of which was not. And, you know, a, a strong, strong Russian presidency under Boris Yeltsin is one thing. A strong, strong Russian presidency under Vladimir Putin is another. And first presidents matter. They set the tone for what the presidency is going to be like. George Washington didn't want to be king. Suppose he'd wanted to be king. You and I might have. I might have learned a curtsy, and you might have learned a bow. So, uh, so I think the Russians. Uh, you have to lay the quote blame at the feet of the Russians. But let's remember, very difficult circumstances. What I saw in Russia, though, was the systematic undoing of institutions that could check the presidency, the press, civil society. The, the Duma is with the legislature. And if we get another chance, if they get another chance in Russia, then those institutions have to be rebuilt. Because the way that you don't get an authoritarian is you put checks and balances around them. That's what our founding fathers understood. But there's one other thing I want to say about the Russians. Vladimir Putin is ultimately not the future of Russia. The Russian people from the 25 years since the collapse of Soviet Union are different. They travel abroad. When I studied in the Soviet Union in 1979, they didn't look at you. These are people now who spoil their children at McDonald's and buy their their apartments and furnish them at Ikea. And so... These are. This is a different breed of people, uh, and eventually they will find their yeah, political it, it voice. It creates an image, and I, I had the experience to be behind the Iron yes, Curtain yes. Uh, before it came down as well. Yes. And one of the images that I try to express to people is you never understand the joy of advertising and marketing until you go to the Soviet <laughs> Union because right. everything is just gray. That's right. It is black and white it as far as the eye can see, right. and there is no 
There is no visible life that you and I are used to. And there was. And think about what's happening in North Korea. It looks the and same. When, when that lid comes off, the exactly. world will be stunned. Well, this is one of the most important points: is when when you have a totalitarian, somebody who controls everything. Kim Jong Un is the best example of that today. But it was once Joseph Stalin or Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. There aren't any institutions underneath, basically. And when you take that lid off, things explode. That's why you want to encourage countries to reform before there's a revolution. In Egypt, we all look at what happened in the Arab Spring and the overthrow of the Mubarak government, and, and very often presidents are asked, why didn't you support, President Obama was asked, why didn't you support Mubarak? Well, with his people in the streets calling for his ouster, that's a little difficult to do. But the key was to encourage Mubarak to reform earlier in the process so that there were legitimate ways for people to change their circumstances. Nobody needs, particularly with our allies in the Middle East, nobody needs revolutions. We, we need reform. And I cite a number of cases where the Middle East is really not the Middle East. There's a lot of variability in reforms that are trying to take hold. Tunisia is a place that seems to be making uh, good steps. Uh, even some of the monarchies are educating women and trying to form councils. When people think about democracy promotion, they often think about the most stressing circumstances. You overthrow a dictator in Iraq who, for whom even the soccer team had to, to serve the state. Mm. Rather than all these other cases where you have something to work with. And what I'd like to say to Americans and to our leadership is, yes, the building of democracy is hard. And yes, there has to be an internal, indigenous group of people who want to do that. We can't bring it from the outside. But it's actually really rare that people would rather live in tyranny. And so we are, should be trying to support those who want to change their circumstances I, and those of their country. I think it appears that one thing that President Trump and Vladimir Putin have in common is that they want to fight Islamic terrorists. Yes. They want to defeat ISIS. Um, and the Russians have been a victim of terrorism in their own country. Is that how President Trump best manages this relationship? Again, context matters here, Bill. And uh, I'm all for the Russians fighting uh, Islamic terrorism because they certainly face it, particularly in their south. But recently in some of their cities, they've had these uh, attacks. Yet, you have to say to, to Putin, but do understand that we take very seriously our Article 5, an attack upon one is an attack upon on all NATO obligations to our allies in Eastern Europe, whether they're in the Baltic states or Poland. So, so don't be confused about that, even if we're going to fight Islamic terrorism Ukraine. together. Ukraine. Uh, you have to understand that we're not going to recognize uh, the forcible incorporation of, of Crimea. And so if the context is right, I think there's a lot that we can uh, agree with and cooperate with the Russians, including, by the way, North Korea, where if Kim Jong-un can eventually reach the western part of the United States, he can certainly reach Russia. Your book centers on three democratic movements. 
the civil rights movement, yeah. which I'll talk about in yeah. a moment. I think you were 10. Uh, a little younger, even. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you talk about... Just um, in case people are adding. Are you talk about... Yeah. I got it. Uh, you talk about the Middle East, yeah. um, and you talk about the fall of the wall yes. in November of 1989. When you also talk about the Middle East, you write about the moment is necessary, right, and inevitable. It was also terrifying and disruptive and chaotic, and what follows is really, really hard. And then you go on to talk about how the question isn't how to create perfect circumstances, but how to move forward under difficult circumstances. As we reflect on Iraq, what has happened, um, what is there today, what could be there tomorrow. I think a lot of people still hold out a lot of promise once you to defeat ISIS and move forward. What do you think we got wrong about our evaluation of democracy, specifically in that part of the world. Well, if there's one thing I hope this book will do, it's to to show people that democracy promotion is not Iraq and Afghanistan. Democracy promotion is what we've also seen in Eastern Europe. It's what we've seen in Liberia. It's what we've seen in Latin America. Because, Bill, we didn't go to Iraq to bring democracy. We went to Iraq to defeat Saddam Hussein, who was a security threat. Not as imminent a security threat, it turns out, as we thought, but a security threat. Once you've done that, though, you have to have a view about what comes after. And President Bush felt very strongly, and I think rightly, that we'd done enough of just kind of have an authoritarian friend in the Middle East, let them suppress the trouble, and we'd learned that it wasn't ultimately stable, as we've seen with the Arab Spring. Now, Iraq has now some institutions, some democratic institutions, a functioning parliament, a prime minister who uh, is accountable to the people, a very free press that every day is holding its government accountable. But as we know in our own system, in our own history, it takes a really long time, particularly when you have a fractured society in terms of, of confessional groups like Sunnis and Shia and, and uh, ethnic groups like Kurds. It takes a really long time. But we can't give up on people who are still trying to make that journey. And once they defeat ISIS, and they will with our help, and here I congratulate both President Obama for getting it started and President Trump for extending it, once we defeat ISIS, uh, they defeat ISIS, they're going to have to come to terms with all of the, the uh, differences in their society. But again, democratic institutions give people a place where they can peacefully carry out their differences, where they can peacefully resolve their differences, rather than going to the streets and I oppress you or you oppress yeah, me. I think it's an eloquent answer. Do, do you th- do you think we thought it would be easier? Yeah, I've been asked that many times. A lot of my students at Stanford. It's the first question. I think if we thought it was going to be easier, then we were making a very big mistake. And I don't think we thought it was going to be easier. I do think that we, uh, and as I detail in the book, we contributed to some of the problems. Uh, we didn't probably understand fully uh, the, the role of the tribes, for instance, uh, the Sunni tribes who would later be our allies in the surge in, uh, at the end of President Bush's career. We really didn't understand the role they might have played early on. I think we didn't uh, quite understand uh, fully enough uh, how much the Sunnis felt disaffected when, uh, unfortunately, an order was delivered to disband the army. And so, yes, we Even made yes, we made some mistakes. We made some mistakes that probably made it harder than it had to be. 
But uh, today, I would rather be Iraqi than Syrian, because the Iraqi government uh, is experiencing security problems, but it's not trying to destroy its own citizens with barrel bombs and chemical weapons. Back to Facebook, Maureen writes, how would you grade Trump's 100 days in foreign policy? Well, I've never much liked the 100-day moment. It seems a bit artificial, but I I have to say that there have been some uh, really uh, very good steps forward. Uh, I've already mentioned I think the Syrian strike was well-timed. It was measured. Uh, It sent a strong message that the President of the United States doesn't watch uh, Syrian babies choke to death on on chemical weapons and do nothing about it, and it enforces a red line that's been out there. Um, I think that the uh, work with the Chinese, I, I thought that Mar-a-Lago went very well. There, we have a lot of uh, a lot of differences with the Chinese, and they have to be managed. And uh, I saw some evidence of beginning to manage those things. Um, I saw also had that been ignored prior. Uh, no, I just think that every president has to come to terms with how you're going to deal with a rising China uh, that doesn't share our values, but with which we have a lot of interest, like economic policy where we need Chinese economic growth uh, and where they need international economic growth. And so I thought Mar-a-Lago went well. And I frankly thought that Rex Tillerson's first meeting with, with Putin was a was a strike of genius. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might not have said to the Russians, you know, uh, given what happened in Syria, you're either incompetent or you're not telling the truth. But it was absolutely true. Um, John on Twitter asks, can we bridge the divide in this country and stop all the hateful rhetoric coming from Democrats and Republicans? I don't know. You're sitting out there in Stanford and... California, right from 3,000 miles away. What does it look like to you there? Well, it still looks like we're having trouble bridging divides. And by the way, it's not just in Washington. We're having trouble bridging divides in our society in general. We don't talk to each other anymore. Uh, We're afraid to listen to ideas that we don't agree with. Um, If you only listen to people who say amen to everything you say, when you then hear somebody who has a different view, you will either think that they're stupid or they're venal. And so we've got to learn to talk across our differences in civil discourse. I believe we can talk as Americans from some unifying ideas. I, I'm worried about our sort of ever breaking ourselves, and I talk about it in the book, into smaller and smaller identity groups. Everybody's got their own grievance. Everybody's got their own narrative. We've forgotten what it means to be American. And to be American is not to come from one identity group. It's to come from this belief that brought our ancestors here and that has made us all American. And that uh, doesn't matter where it came from. It matters where you're going. You write early on, ending authoritarian rule can happen quickly. Mm-hmm. Establishing democratic institutions cannot. Yeah. Um, with that comes a level of trust. Yes. You think about Middle Eastern countries that are struggling with this decision now. Uh, if you don't have trust in your legislative branch or your banking institution or your justice department, you cannot create a society that has the foundation that can move forward. That's right. And it takes a long time for human beings to trust these abstractions like uh, courts or the the Constitution. Um, I also say that it's a lot easier to tear these institutions down than it is to uh, to build them. And And uh, I do worry about the 
repeated surveys in the United States that say Americans are losing faith in all of our institutions. And it's a sort of cascading list of institutions that are no longer trusted. But I think that we have to go back to first principles. We were bequeathed, we were given by the Founding Fathers an extraordinary chance with very young institutions that have proven over time that they can respond to the many challenges that we have. I write about the civil rights movement, partly because I experienced it, but also because it was a kind of second founding for America. Who would have thought that the descendants of slaves would be able to secure their rights through the American Constitution, through the American courts, yes, in the streets in my home of Birmingham, Alabama, but also through what Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP and others did at the time in the courts, Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, Bill, I was born in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. Couldn't go to a restaurant, couldn't go to a movie theater, didn't have a, a white classmate till we moved to Denver when I was 12. Constitution once counted my ancestors as three-fifths of a man in a compromise. My father had trouble voting in 1952 in Birmingham, Alabama. And there I am, Secretary of State, taking an oath of allegiance to that same Constitution. America has shown this incredible ability to evolve under our very important principles and institutions. And that is what we really have to remember. Another question from Facebook, and this probably was the most asked question. Will you consider running for president? <laughs> uh, I don't have that DNA. Uh, you have to know what you love to do. I, I was really fortunate. I got to be Secretary of State, and um, I love foreign policy. I love policy. I don't much like politics, and um, I have enormous admiration for anybody who runs for office, and sometimes we don't give them enough credit. I, I sometimes have wanted to say, with all due respect, Bill, to mm -hmm. those in the press, just try that for a few days. Yeah, give, that. <laughs> give it yeah. a try. Go ahead there and see what it's like to Good be luck. president of the United States. You know, last fall, you were critical of President Trump publicly. Um, has that changed? Has that softened? Uh, Where are you now? He is our president. And I respect what he did in getting elected and the voices that he brought into the process. A friend of mine called this the Do You Hear Me Now election for people who had not been heard. And I will do everything that I can to try to help him be successful. Uh, we won't always agree. Um, you know, I think everybody knows I'm a, a major proponent of, um, of immigration reform, for instance, and we don't seem to be moving in, in that direction. But I fully... Uh, expect that uh, this president, operating within the context of uh, the great uh, constitution that our, that our founding fathers gave us and the great institutions that they gave us, uh, will govern in a way that is uh, acceptable uh, in the norms of democracy. And uh, so far, that's what I've seen. You've been listening to an American trailblazer in Dr. Condoleezza Rice. For more of our interview, go to my Facebook page and see all of it in its entirety. That's Bill Hemmer online. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.